so hello everyone and welcome to this month's edition of the Fly Youths podcast and you are joined by me uh, Mr. Mohan Bahari as well as some of my other colleagues in the Fly research team and I'm extremely excited to welcome our guest this month who is an extremely prolific writer who I came across in 2020 during the glove boom on the recommendation of a friend who's actually here Mr. Kelvin Kwa so let us all welcome to the podcast Mr. Han or Han as you like to be called who is a lawyer by trade therefore trade view but also the ceo of a boutique asset management firm trade view capital berhad which is licensed by the sc which is not something many uh, malaysian writers can say in the stock market scene and they do get caught for that uh, but he also has an exceptional book called once upon a time in bursa the money equation which i also got for mr calvin kwasa birthday present last year i don't know why to mention that uh, you're welcome calvin uh, which i greatly enjoyed for its contextualization of the malaysian stock market and the book was also awarded the best in business readings of 2021 by mph so yeah let's i guess have some clap emojis uh, right now and i'm going to ask mr han how are you doing and is there anything you think i missed out on that you would like uh, our audience which is mostly made out of students to know hi mr barry thank you very much for having me just call me han to do i think that makes me feel more at ease thank you for the introduction and um, like i said when you first uh, sent an email to invite me i was truly uh, uh, happy with it because i've always felt um, financial literacy for you huh? basically your organization the idea notion concept is everything that i've always felt strongly for i think um, youth particularly if they start getting involved in finance at an early age or at least at a point where they feel that they can start to have some grabs it will help them very much in the future so uh i think most of those invitations that come uh over the past one one two years uh, has been somewhat uh i mean in large volumes uh, but for yours i did not even hesitate so thank you for having me on the show uh, you're very welcome and thank you for coming along so i'm just going to Uh, give a brief overview about what our yeah. general discussion today will encompass. So the first one is yeah. just general questions about being a student. How did you get yeah. started being a lawyer by trade to having your own yeah. asset management yeah. firm? The second one will be about the Malaysian stock market and the Bursa Malaysia scene, and the third will generally encompass the world of investing. And then we'll probably have some follow-up questions here and there to. tackle any curiosities that we may have and so with that in mind i would like to pass off to jachi to begin with our first question thanks bahari so just a little bit background info for our audience you started as a certified lawyer but began writing about economics and finance related topics in 2013 under the pen name of trade deal after getting inspired by the financial crisis in 2008 due to subprime mortgages Can you tell us more about your view on how finance and economics affect the world around us and why this is essential for the layman to be enlightened on? Thanks, Jachi, for the question. Let me start off by saying I'm very privileged because I had the opportunity to study in the London School of Economics. Um, when I was there, um, of course, I got in for a degree in law. But uh, what I didn't know and what actually set me apart um, was that I was so... in in the midst of the whole Lehman brother crisis and the global financial crisis because uh, as you all know London's economy is right smack in London London is the hub of 
Europe's capital markets. So I basically went there, not knowing much about the financial markets, but in the midst of everything, I basically downloaded so much of this real life um, up close and personal experience with the financial markets. Um, at that point in time, we know the environment in universities, many people are applying for internship, graduate programs, jobs. And when Lehman Brothers hit, uh, basically the whole campus atmosphere totally changed. Why? It's because the whole capital markets have been through something that is as serious as JFC. Many people who wanted a job couldn't get a job. Those who got a job, basically before they even start, they were asked to, to leave. So it was that kind of situation. And what makes me uh, so interested is, is because I felt it was like physics, you know. So of all the sciences, chemistry, biology, physics, physics is the one that we can most relate to. Why is there a rainbow? And then uh, why does the rain uh, 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 storm comes by, you know? So it was basically to me, economics was like physics. So it's something I can relate to. And as a result, I took a, a module in economics as well, despite my uh, law degree. And then I realized my real passion lies there. However, of course, um, once you are in uh, undergraduate doing law, of course, you want to finish it. And I, I subsequently went to Singapore to do my bar. And then I practiced as a lawyer about three to four years in Singapore. And then back in Malaysia with Baker McKinsey Wong Partners uh, in a corporate M&A IPO space. Uh, so... In total, I had about five years actual experience in law before I decided to start charting my career moving towards something that I really wanted to end up in, which is the capital markets. Yeah. So other than like the financial crisis, right? Mm. Is there any certain point in your life or any mm. other events that really trigger you to learn about econs and finance in RSE? Mm. I think I've always been interested in business. So when you're interested in business, um, where do you get the most resource? So to me, uh, the most direct resource is the stock market. Because um, if I want to understand a business, my best resource would be the stock market through their annual reports and all. So I felt very interested. And of course, capital markets has a lot of elements, um, macroeconomics, microeconomics, financial accounting. You know, So one of the most important thing that I felt uh, related to me was the macroeconomics and how it trickled down and affect the direct business, whether big or small, whatever. And from there, I realized that I really had a huge passion towards it, but it came mostly from how I felt um, I wanted to learn about business. Not so much um, making money at a point, it's just learning because very simple. Um, everyone says they want to be a billionaire, they want to be a startup or a tycoon, right? But you have to start somewhere. And how can you start right off the bat with just a creative idea without knowing anything about business and economics? So you have to have a foundation. And to me, um, the materials and the resources on businesses and economics, that in itself is what got me interested in this uh, economics and finance or, or this space generally. Yeah. I couldn't agree more on the importance of finance and economics you have mentioned as your essence you know, the connections of them to our daily lives, especially during, you know, the pandemic and current inflation period. So um, with that being said, I believe saving is really, really crucial, not only for millennials and Gen Z that are planning to buy a house, but also for the youth. So um, Han, you came from a humble beginning and mentioned that saving is the only way to break the poverty cycle. 
So is there any advice on managing finances starting from a young age, given that our audience are mainly college and university students? I think the thriftiness in myself have always started from my father. I think my father is a very humble and grounded man who has uh, led a very decent, honest life. And he always tells us that, um, yes, um, we should do our very best, uh, work very hard. But more importantly, we must be aware of our finances. Uh, it, personally, he says that uh, saving is very important because before you can learn how to multiply your wealth, you need to have the foundation. And this foundation stems from the ability to save. If you have the discipline to save, be thrifty, um, spend wisely, use it, use your money, over time, um, you will be able to work towards multiplying your wealth. Why I say that? It's very simple. If you're spending money all the time beyond your means, you will always think about paying off your debts, you see? But if you are saving, what is most important is that you are creating um, excess, excess funds, which eventually can lead to you being able to invest. So you cannot say you want to start investing without having savings. Similarly, having too much savings and not investing is not wise as well. It goes hand in hand. But between the two, savings must come first. Only with that, you have the ability, or I would say leeway, to take a certain amount of investments. Let me put it very simply. If you divide your income into three baskets, your savings, your investments, and your emergency funds, once it's set aside for emergency funds, then after that, your savings, in savings, I would mean fixed deposits, um, your EPF, you know, those kind of are what we call savings, are whether for savings, you know, some level amount of insurance, you know, then the excess wanted, you can then use for um, investing. However, if you're always using it to buy the latest gadgets or new toy device or PlayStation or whatever, you know, then you will always be, a, there's always something in the world that you want to spend on and there's opportunity cost. So the opportunity cost basically lies in whatever you spend to enjoy now, you won't have enough for later days. And for me, I've always been able to do um, what they call it, the delayed gratification. I never had a PlayStation even though I want it so badly. I never even uh, um, had a chance to play uh, on, on a PlayStation until I was in universities. And usually I just use my roommate's one. You know, so what I'm trying to tell you is that I think it's unreal for most people to say, oh, you only play PlayStation when you're 21. You know, but that is how I've always been cultivating um, certain kind of habits. And savings definitely is the first and foremost um, step. After that, the next step will be investing. Okay, I truly agree about that. And that's very informative. I, I wish I knew these tips earlier, but you know, it's never too late to start saving and picking up some good financial habits as mentioned just now. So um, I believe at this point, you guys must be as excited as I am right now to continue learning from the advisors and tips Mr. Han will, give, will be giving out later. So now I'll pass it to Daryl to talk about the career advice. Uh, thank you, Jiaqi. Uh, so Han, as mentioned previously in the introduction and previous questions, you were a law practitioner. I imagine you must have you must have really struggled to get into the finance industry when you decided that law really wasn't your passion. So my question for you is that what would you recommend or advise the current generation of university students if they were in a similar position as you, where they want to get into the finance industry? but their degree might not allow them to do so. I think, Daryl, um, you asked a very good question, and it's something that I've asked myself for the past 10 years. 
you know, um, why, why, why I say this is because my journey from what I've been through over the past, uh, actually since I graduated in 2010 until today, 12 years, has been a very difficult journey. I think um, what people see today is saying that they're seeing the fruits of my labor, but they don't see the sacrifice that goes behind the scene. I've been through so much um, hardship and challenges that I think it cannot be summed up in a simple uh, few forms. But I just want to share a bit, lah. at least you all see how I, I overall strategize and move. So when I was in um, university, I always wanted to go into the capital markets. In UK, US, or even Australia, developed countries for that matter, if you study biology, history, or whatever, you can still get into the uh, capital markets. You, know, you do well in assessment, you pass the interview, you can still get into investment banking. But when we come to this part of the world, Asia, specifically Southeast Asia and Malaysia, they are very conservative. What they look at is your capital markets experience uh, and your qualification. If you do not have certain financial qualification, you are automatically sort of discounted. You are not ruled out, but discounted. So in a lot of interviews, people have asked me, um, it cannot be that hard for someone like me who come from London School of Economics to get a job in an investment bank. Well, very simply is, I was already practicing as a lawyer uh, a certain number of years working in Singapore and Malaysia. So I was earning a certain level of income. If I want to go into the cap capital markets industry with the same income, it's not possible. They will tell me that, yeah, I can take you, but you can start from zero. You know, so they discount my years of experience in law, even though I did, I was exposed to M&A, IPOs, did some of the biggest deals in the country. So then the only one who can match that, that kind of pay, even at entry level, would be your bulge bracket banks, your, your foreign firms. So when I went for interviews, I went for this kind of uh, entities and this kind of organizations. Thankfully, I mean, I got to the final stage, but they always come back to me with a final, <laughs> I would say, um, they will always tell me, Han, uh, we are worried if we hire you, you do not have the numerical ability to deliver what we need for this job. So what can you say to that? The fact of the matter is I didn't touch mats for four or five years, right? I didn't use it in my law career. So the only way I could um, work towards this was basically to start thinking of a career switch. I'm not advocating a career switch to any listeners if you clearly know what you want to do. I knew at that point in time, I wanted to get into the capital markets. I wanted to be a businessman. I wanted to own my own business. And I had to decide then, then at four to five years into my career as a lawyer, whether do I want to stick to this or take a career switch? Why? At five years practicing experience, you just need another three years, you can make junior partner if you're good. So the opportunity cost becomes higher. If I make a switch, I'll be lucky if I can get a managerial equivalent look role. But where do I get? So there was this opportunity that came about um, from a consultancy firm versus a conglomerate, which was um, looking for a group strategy. So I decided to join the conglomerate simply because they were going through a corporate exercise. Um, they were splitting one of their units and they were doing this thing IPO. I had some relevant experience as a lawyer to help with the deal structuring. And I decided that I would take the chance, I would switch my career. I mean, at a point, most people around me, except probably my family, they would say that it was a silly decision. Why? Why would you give up the glamour of wearing suit 
oh, by the way, that time Suits was showing on TV. So they say the glamour of being a, a suited then uh, in the country. Why would you do something to join a local conglomerate? That is like a backward step, right? But that is the thing about me. I decided and I know that what I wanted and whatever the people around me said didn't really matter as long as my goal was clear. So this switch was the first career um, uh, move that I made that was um, unorthodox. Then later on, one thing led to another. I was recruited by a Fortune 500 company for a chief strategist role. But at that point in time, also working towards the unlocking of their company to potentially go for listing in Singapore or Hong Kong. So uh, I went in there, but because the company needed someone who was able to take up more roles beyond just one function, I took up whatever they threw to me and I climbed very, very fast. And it accelerated my career. Uh, in part also because they needed a Malaysia talent who can speak English, Mandarin, and BM fluently. And that is where the Malaysian quality in me actually shine for this foreign Fortune 500 company. Then come the painful one was that as I was climbing up and I was ascending really fast, I think at the point I was probably, uh, uh, if I can recall correctly, I was 30 years, years old. I was a C-suite. So I was probably the youngest C-suite at that point in time in Malaysia. So I was very well remunerated. I was very well regarded. I have a very good corporate career. <laughs> but that was when I make a, a second unorthodox move. I decided to quit my job. Okay, so again, people around me asked, said I was stupid, right? Why are you doing things like that? You know, um, but again, it goes back to where my goal was. My goal was to join the capital markets and hopefully to build a business out of it. And at that point in time, when I quit, it was six months before COVID, I started several businesses. Um, of course, I started my law firm um, because I needed to feed myself while I waited for my application for my securities commission license for my asset management company. And uh, the process took many years for me to get the license because there is the process that the regulators need to go through, including vetting your background, checking if you have the necessary skill set. And to be very frank with all of the audience owning an asset management company in Malaysia, I don't think you hear that every day. Lah, you know? To put it into perspective, um, in the boutique fund management space in the whole of Malaysia, there's only 10 firms. And this was across seven years since this licensing regime was introduced by the Malaysia government. So you can think an, an average approval of 1.5 uh, fund management companies per year. So mine is the 10th in Malaysia. In comparison to Singapore, there's probably 200 boutique fund management companies. But in Malaysia, there's only 10 boutique funds. So when you compare, you understand how difficult it is to get the license and how, how difficult it is to start up. But my goal was always clear, right? So it, it goes back to where I was at a point in time in my life. And what was my career goal? I never wanted to work for people. I knew that I have certain fire in me to not only um, you know, charge towards my ambition and goal in life. And I think I also had the humility to go through the kind of, um, I would say, uh, enduring the climbing the corporate ladder. What I know about most young people today, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah? feel free to correct me, is that when they say they want to start a company, even before working for someone, they just come out quick, then they just do a startup. They don't have money, they raise funds, right? So if they get good 
people who trust them or funders who are willing to back their ideas, they get the money and they start. For me, I stick and build my reputation, credibility, acquire the skill set over an 11-year career, at least proving myself in the corporate sector that I, am, I have the ability to deliver certain, I would say, uh, performance for the company. And I bootstrap with my savings, investment to build my business. There are no external funders. Everything is all my own two hands when I, when I start my company. So you see, this, this is a big contrast to the climate today in US, UK or developed markets. I'm not saying my way is the right way, but definitely my way is the super painful way. <laughs> so unless you're willing to go through that kind of pain, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying my path is very, very painful. But because of that, my foundation is strong. My foundation is strong. It means that when someone comes to me and asks me and they want to test me or my clients, they approach me. I believe I have what it takes to get them to trust me and for me to take their money and invest for them. And this is because of the years of sacrifice and challenges I've been through. So to answer your question, Daryl, if young Malaysians would like to go out there and start their own company, be patient. Don't be too hasty. It's very difficult if you see sometimes you see the news of 23-year-old billionaire, 26-year-old billionaire. The, uh, some guy earning seven-figure salary here and there. But this is what you hear, all the positive things. What about the negative? What about the 99% that fail? You know? And this 99% that fail, they're probably still living off their parents. I don't think that is in the culture of us, you know, especially Asian children, to want our parents to do worry about this uh, when we are probably at the age that we are supposed to provide for them, right? So this is something that you all have to ask yourself. But do not deter, do not be deterred by all the challenges in life. If you have a goal, whether to be a business owner or to, to build up a, a great enterprise, you know, work towards it. Every single thing that you do along your, your career, where even you're working as executive, a junior level, you can always learn something. And that is how I view the whole situation in good or bad times. I hope that answered your question there. Yeah, um, thank you, Han. So I guess in a way to summarize your yeah. your point was that uh, whenever an opportunity arises, you should definitely go for it, but depending on whether it's your passion or not. So if you feel that you're passionate in your current workspace, maybe don't go for it. But if you feel that maybe right now you're not passionate at your job and you want to go for something more, you should definitely go for it, even though other people might find it illogical. Mm. Okay, yes, yeah, thank you for that. I feel that that was very insightful. The story was definitely definitely something that touched my heart and yeah. very happy to see that you, in a way, made it through all that and that it was all worth it. Uh, anyway, so uh, moving on uh, with my next question, I think in Malaysia, uh, we might be very familiar with terms such as hot stocks, either from friends or from investment gurus. However, I believe that when, in, when it comes to investing, we are not us investors, but investors in general should at least do some form of research when deciding to invest. Um, so as a guideline, I guess we can use your money equation from your book, such as looking through management, operating cash flows. So in my question, uh, my question to you is, what are some of the most common mistakes you see that Malaysians make while investing? Do you think that Malaysians are prone to listening to rumors like hot stocks or perhaps we are too enormed with 
the fundamental analysis? I think um, uh, this is a very big topic because mistakes, even I, until today, I make a lot of mistakes. Uh, every time I, I would say the market humbles me and I learn every single day. Uh, uh, that's why I always, when people say that, you know, um, Han, um, how do I become a good investor? Actually, I don't have an answer, an absolute answer that because there are too many factors that are in play. When you talk about the stock market, it's accumulation of all the people, the most diverse people with the most diverse ideas coming together and making their opinion uh, um, come about by using their hard-earned money and investing. So it's a combination of different people with different ideas. So how do you excel under such circumstances? Do you go with the norm or do you go against the norm? You know. So this is a very huge topic. But if I look in the Malaysia context, I feel that Malaysians' majority of the investors uh, are still not up to the level of sophistication um, compared to those that we see in more developed markets. It is not because the developed market investors are smarter than Malaysians. I don't think so. But I feel that there are a lot of other um, short-sighted um, interest that affects and cloud the judgment of Malaysian investors. A lot listen to friends, neighbors, relatives. It's very simple. If you go for Hari Raya or Chinese New Year, you know when someone is talking about stocks, the relatives all start to crowd around. And then people start sharing all these tips and then they start doing all these um, um, investment decisions based on all these tips. My uncle would lie to me, you know, my cousin would laugh me. You know, there's always that kind of trust in the family, which is a good thing. You know, it's just that when it comes to the market, you should trust no one by yourself, you know? And knowledge is the single thing that can help you do well in the stock market, especially in the long run. So over the years, I've realized that um, when you invest, you must have a very fixed ideology. When I say fixed, it means that it's not that you cannot be a keep an open mind, you mu but you must know how you invest. An example, we always hear people talk about fundamental analysis, technical analysis, then charties, you know, all kinds of, of methodology. You must choose one that best suits your personality, your risk appetite, your investment horizon. You cannot just do something just because someone says it's right. You cannot do 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 make an investment decision and then ultimately uh, blame it on the person who tells you, you know, because that is our problem, you see. When when we when we make a wrong decision. It's everyone else's fault. But when we do something right, all glory comes to yourself. So that is nature, human nature. But if you, for example, if you are a fundamental analyst, you believe being a fundamental investor and investing long-term helps, then stick to it. Don't, when, when the time suits you, you say, I'm a fundamentalist. When it goes against you, oh, I'm a technical analyst. You know? So you cannot keep switching. You, know? you have to stick to your, what you're good at, what suits you the most. And what is your investment philosophy? What is your investment mindset? You must go and search and find it. I've always told people in various occasions, whether in my writings, in my columns, or in my books, my method may not suit you. And I may not be the right person to emulate when you invest. But I'm sharing with you what I know. And if you feel you can relate to it, you think that that's something that you want to uh, try, by all means, go ahead. But if you feel that, no, this is not for me, I don't believe in fundamental long-term investing, then you use whatever that suits you. 
ultimately, what you must do when you invest is you must invest so much so that you're able to sleep well at night. Whatever method you use, lah, TA, lah, FA, lah, whatever. If you can sleep well at night, that is a good way. You know? And for Malaysians, is they keep switching. They don't have a, a, a philosophy of their own. They do not carve that particular investment philosophy and stick by it. You keep changing and switching as and when it suits you. Listening to rumors and tips is another problem. And then, of course, one of the other issues that plague not only Malaysians, but any investors in the world is greed. Once you're greedy, when you make, <laughs> it's never enough. And when you lose, you want to earn it back. So you do not cut loss and at the same time, you do not um, uh, uh, ride it you know, and, and take profit when, you, when, it's, when it's the right time. So all these are weaknesses. But of course, again, Daryl, this doesn't apply to only Malaysians, but generally investors uh, as a whole. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Thank you for that, Han. Uh, I'm Thank sure you. that all, all potential Malaysian investors or just investors in general will do their due diligence either using fundamental analysis or techni- technical analysis. Uh, thank you for that. Now I would like to pass it to Calvin to talk about yeah. your experience in the stock market. Um, um, Calvin, yeah. uh, I've got to know you through and I'm a huge fan of your short articles on Telegram and I also love your book. I'm really curious as someone without a finance degree, do you feel disadvantaged in your investing journey? Or do you think law degree actually complements it? I don't think the law degree helped me in any way in terms of investing. But the law degree, or to an extent, um, my ability to read a lot of materials in a very short span of time, because when you're a law student, you have to read a lot of materials, right? Then you have to be able to dissect, digest, analyze, and then later on extract the content, and then you go for exams, you know, you write out the content. So it helps me in digesting, dissecting a lot of information in a very short span of time, you know? So that skill set helped. But in terms of understanding how the business works, what is the business model, whether it will do well in the future, I don't think the law degree directly contributes to it. The skill set is transferable. Uh, Kelvin, thank you very much for uh, reading my articles and following my commentaries on Telegram as well as reading my book. I mean, as a, as a person who goes by a pen name, I've always asked myself, who would want to read <laughs> what I'm writing you know (laughs) I mean you know even when the publisher approached me to write a book I even told the publisher are you sure someone will want to buy my book so it took me a long time to decide whether I wanted to even write a book to be very frank with you because I felt I was still learning and I do not think I am at the level where I can teach people so I told my publisher all right what I'll do is I'll write a book but I'll write it based on my investment journey, my experience, my mistakes, my failures, and what I did right and what works for me. But I will not teach. I will not say this is the law of how I'm investing. You know? I'll just write whatever that suits me. And if people like it, they like it. If they don't like it, huh, then you have to underwrite all the books. Huh? <laughs> so the publisher agreed. And, and that's why when they told me I won the bestseller, I couldn't believe it. But oh, I'm thankful uh, Mahathir's book and Nazir Razak's book wasn't in the same category as my, my investment wow. book. <laughs> if they were in, my, in, in the same category as my investment book, I probably won't be able to, to win the bestseller. So sometimes um, I think a lot of things that we do in life, if I use it, do it with sincerity, right? Hoping for nothing in return. Maybe people 
will appreciate just like you Kelvin maybe there are people out there who actually will really appreciate it because to be frank with you as an author you don't make any money you know you don't make good money we are not JK Rowling or Dan Brown you know in Malaysia when you write a book majority of the profits goes to the bookstore and the publisher you get a very very small cut out of it and the, the amount of books multiplied by the, the your royalty doesn't amount to much even as a bestseller I can tell you that so writing a book is more of giving back and what prompted me at a point in time to write a book apart from um, the publisher approaching me was I was one, wondering if someday I'm no longer around because I had a young child. So I was thinking, what can I leave for my children to remember me by? And I thought, maybe I just write whatever I, I have accumulated the thoughts and philosophy in the, in the space of investing. So if anything happens to me, there's something that they can relate to me, you know? So that was that, con- that, that, that idea that pushed me forward and encouraged me to write a book. It was just to leave something for my children so that, you know, someday they can at least get to know their father better. And that was what made me, it wasn't the monetary returns, it wasn't the reputation, it wasn't um, anything that is more of a personal reward. It's just a, something I just wanted to put my thoughts from in, into, into writing. So back to your question, Kelvin. I do not think the law degree helped me in terms of becoming a good investor or a better investor, but the skill set helped. And for a person like me, I've always said, if I can do it, I think anyone can do it. Because it's, it's just like um, riding a bike, right? You, you, if you don't try, you do not, do not know, right? But once you try and you learn how to balance, then you'll be able to do it. But similarly to riding a bike, you know, you will fall down at times, but you have to learn how to get up. And then you must learn how to ride it the right way, right? Then, of course, there are those who become championship riders, you know, or Olympic medalists, you know. But they are, generally, everyone can ride a bike. So investment is the same thing. Everyone can invest. And if you do it the right way, you won't fall. So my, my viewpoint is that do not hinder yourself by saying, okay, I'm not in economics, finance, I didn't study all this, I don't know anything about it, so I don't want to give it a try. I think you should give it a try and if you like it, great. If you really don't like it after you try, then leave it to the professionals. That's fine. But investing is quite fun because if, for, I'll give you a very simple example. If you like a particular company, right, mm-hmm. and you do not have uh, the ability or huge enormous wealth to buy over the company or, or start your own company, what is the easiest way to own a part of the company? That's basically to invest in the shares, right? So, for example, I like Family Mart, right? So, I felt that, ah, I like the food, I like the ice cream, I like how it's run. Okay, so I bought QL, right? So, I bought QL, a listed company that owns Family Mart. And every time I go there and spend, you know, I feel quite okay. Well, well, well I'm a shareholder, right? <laughs> so, I buy ice cream, yeah. it comes back to me. So, I enjoy the ice cream and the money comes back to me indirectly. So, you get so there was one one occasion I think this is for the listeners to laugh at like, this this is another part of me that is um a bit um, I don't know whether you all find it uh, funny or not so there was once the government was talking about hiking toll rate toll you know the toll toll uh, our Malaysian toll whether your sprint or your detract or you know whatever so they they hike I think it was a thirty or forty percent hike and everyone was complaining the government is hiking the the toll rate, it's so bad for me. You know, every month I go spend how much, how much, how much. At the point, I kept quiet. 
Why? Because I own listed companies <laughs> that own own the, the concessionaire. So if the toll rate hike, it benefits me, right? As a shareholder, I'll get higher dividends and everything. So I just laughed. Then they asked me why. I said, well, whatever that you're paying is coming to me. They said, what do you mean? You know, every year I get dividend, how much from Gamuda and D-Track. And then all these are from the higher toll rate. You know, so whatever that I get from dividend will go and subsidize my toll costs. You know, when I go through yeah. the toll, I don't feel so bad. So that is the beauty of investing in a different light. Uh, you know, you, you can relate it to yourself. You can help you uh, churn certain income. You can subsidize your daily expenses. There are a lot of ways to look at investment. Just choose one that suits you. And then, you know, maybe life would be more colorful. Yeah, I, I truly agree with with your mindset of investing <laughs> like you, you you invest in things that let's say like Apple let's say you use yeah. iPhone this yeah. this buy Apple yeah um, correct <laughs> I'll just, um, I'll just interject by saying I, I'm trying that right now because I know I'm going to buy a iPhone 14 but it's not going too well <laughs> with Apple so <laughs> iPhone 16 it is but sorry go <laughs> but sorry uh, elaborating on that so but do you think investing is for everyone? Because some people, like I, I've been through investing, like theoretically, yes, if let's say you're, you know what you're doing, then you should be able to do well in investing. But I sometimes have some emotional um, issues which I, I should work, work on it as well. Like there are different aspects of investing. So do you think investing is for everyone? I think uh, this is a very good point. What you talked about is emotional part of investing, psychological part of investing. I mean, it's all well and good. You look at numbers, you look at accounts, but you know the market is not rational, right? Why I say the market is not rational is because, remember, it is a culmination of humans, individuals with diverse ideas, diverse people, all congregated in one particular marketplace. And everyone is making investment decisions every single day. So imagine you are with, let's just say Malaysia, you are with 10 million people at any point in time who are all investing in the market. And one wakes up in the morning, had a bad day, he decides to sell his share. Another guy wakes up in the morning with a good mood and decides to buy the share. So how can the market at any point in time be rational? So this is the emotional and psychological aspect of that. Now, what is the great equalizer for all human and mankind? What is one thing, no matter how rich you are, how poor you are, whether you are king or whether you are pauper, what is the one thing that all of us are equal by all standards? Time. Everyone has equal amount of time. Time meaning that at this point in time, when you buy a particular share, your investment horizon, how long you are. So everything over time normalizes, equalizes. You know, when you break up with your girlfriend, you're very sad, right? Over time, you get over it. You know, time heals everything. Time manages time or normalize. Yeah, right? So investment, the same thing. Your best friend is time. So if you're very short term, your time frame is very short. Naturally, you'll be more anxious. You'll be more emotional. You're more psychologically affected. But if you invest with a long-term horizon, five years, 10 years, 20 years, the share price, when it moves up or down, it doesn't bother you, right? Mm. This is the thing. Whenever I talk to a lot of people, they tell me they're long-term investment investors, right? When it's doing well. When the share price is doing well, they are long-term investors. When the share price is doing bad, they become daily investors, short-term traders. So this is something that, it comes back to what I mentioned earlier, you might have to be consistent, right? 
So if you're a long-term investor, you're a long-term investor. You cannot, because the share price go up, you're a long-term investor. Share price go down, you're a short-term investor. doesn't work like that. But you must ask yourself, you know, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? I'll give an example. If your goal is to buy an iPhone 16, iPhone 16 is what? Two years from now, right? So you have to probably either save in the next two years or you can save a portion and invest a portion, right? Now, if you save a portion and invest a portion, your investment horizon from, say, today to iPhone 16 is two years. You have two years to invest to get your iPhone 16, right? So take your time, build your wealth over two years, you know, and work towards that goal. Similarly, if your life goal is to be financially free, financial freedom, by the time you are probably 50, you've got 20, 30 years. Think of that as your investment horizon. When you make mistakes, you learn. When you make money, great. You know, so this is the, the, the way we should always invest. It's not today's share price go up, I sell. Then today, tomorrow's share price drop, I cut. You will in the end lose out to brokerage fees, waste your time and effort, and ultimately you throw in the towel. Honestly, there's no secret to becoming a good investor, but I personally have learned from the greatest people, uh, greatest investors, and all of them, generally, majority of them, yeah, I would say the Buffetts, the Peter Lynch, they are all long-term investors. And I mean long-term, they are really, really long-term. Imagine, uh, Buffett is 90, and he's still talking about long-term investment. You know? Charlie so, Munger. <laughs> yeah, Charlie Munger, 98, he's talking about long-term investment. So that is what I'm saying. You know, these are proven people with proven track record. Don't listen to those fake gurus, people who only joined the market a few years and or they're here during the bull market. You know, look at those people who have been around a long time. The very reason they've been around a long time is because they have the right investment mindset and philosophy and they have a proven track record. And coming back to your question, I think everyone can be an investor as long as they're willing to put in the effort, do a bit of study um, instead of listening to someone and prolong your investment horizon. Over the long term, you will do well. Mm. Thanks for the advice. Um, speaking of, um, let's say, like, in summary, my, my first question was, because you, has, you then have a finance degree, and also after that, you talk about um, time, and then basically, if we put the effort to learn investing, we will eventually do well. But what do you think um, is the factor that sets you apart from other investors who are also putting in the same effort and is also willing to wait for a long-term return? What do you think is the skill that you have that um, even make you um, to get the license, the one of 10 license for the asset management fund? Okay, um, I'll break the, the question into two parts uh, and I'll answer it you know, in the two parts. Um, I think, I don't think I'm that great. I don't think I'm that special compared to everyone else. But I think I'm quite consistent in my belief. Lah. When I say consistent, meaning I don't switch here and there as and when, you know. If I, if I take a position, for example, in a particular stock or a company, and if I don't see any structural or fundamental switch to the industry sector or the company, I will stick by it, lah, you know. And then I'll enjoy the dividend yields or whatever while the company continues to grow over time, you know. And my horizon can be very long. It can, when I say long, 
some people say one year is one year long. Actually, my long is I usually think about five year or ten year time frame. You know, because simply because I'm also very busy with my life, I cannot keep looking at the market daily. You see, so I have to look beyond that. But I usually don't invest less than a one year horizon. That means I never say I invest a stock for the next three months or next six months. So I think that is what I can consistently do, and I walk the talk lah by doing that. So, you see, time will show how you behave, and time will reflect it. I dare to write a book, which records my investment experience, which records the stocks that I like, which can be reflected by your in ten years and fifteen years, right? If ten to fifteen years time, you all look back and look at my book. And you see some of the stocks that are performing badly or not up to standard, you can come back and tell me, "Hey, Han, I want a refund." <laughs> you know, you get what I'm saying. I dare to write it. It's because my horizon is long. You see, five, ten, fifteen, twenty years. You all can look it back. Not the immediate one year, not the immediate uh two year, but five, ten, fifteen, twenty years. Like I, I wrote it right in the front page of my book. The advice that I gave to my child. You know, true investments pays dividend at times very far into the future, right? At times spanning generations. So this is where I think I'm really different from others. And why, Kelvin? The answer is very simple. I know my advantage compared to most investors is my relative youth. The very weakness that people say is that young people have. You are too young, lah. You have no experience, lah. You don't know what the world is. But I can always counter it by saying I have a longer horizon. This long term horizon and time allows me to make mistake and learn along the way. And it is similarly because of this long term horizon, I'm able to become a very good investor in thirty years time. It may not be immediate. You may be better than me, but in thirty years time, forty years time, if I really work on it, I stick. So that is that is where I think it separates me from myself. Now, if you talk about the fund management, securing a fund management asset license, I think I sacrifice a lot in my life, um, towards building a business, towards getting. I have given up a lot of opportunities for short term monetary gains. I've given up fat paying jobs to chase a dream, uh, and to work towards building a uh, uh my uh, own business. I put in more effort, I believe, than most people. Uh, I sacrifice a lot of enjoyment in life, and day and night, whenever I whenever I feel down, I feel dejected, and I feel very lonely. I have a very good bunch of friends, family who support me to continue pushing towards the agenda. So if you ask me what separates me from other people to be able to get the asset management license from Security Commission Malaysia, I would say it's my perseverance. I can really, really take bad time. I can really take it. So I don't think a lot of young people can really stomach that kind of um, failures, rejections, being snubbed, being overlooked, being disrespected. I don't think a lot of people can do that. I can really take it. I think that is where, where um, uh, it dis- distinguishes a person from um being a business owner and someone who is uh who gives up. Yeah. Okay. I think I'll pass it on to my colleague. And and thanks so much for answering my question. It's a really honor to uh, speak to you. Thanks, Kevin. Um, I'll pass it to Harris. So hello, my name is Harris. I know you like 
I watch the full podcast about uh, the that, uh, about the grab acquiring uh, Jayagosa. Uh, so I so see, that's I why see. I know you. So I today see. I have a general question about the investing. Yeah. So yeah. do you believe that do you believe that paper trading such as like in Malaysia we have like KC Journal or Bursa Marketplace is a mm. worthwhile for the younger generation or university student as this mm. as this is not a real and part investing and the emotion is not associated and heightened the stakes. Mm. Yeah. Very good question, Harris. I think that 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 is a good place to start, especially for a beginner. I also uh before I started investing real money, right? So have a lot of paper trading. But today there's a lot of tools, right? Back then yeah. there wasn't so many tools. So I have a notebook. I write down the stocks that I like and I put in an imaginary number of what price I'm buying. And then I reflect back after one or two months and then see where I am. You know, so even I do all this paper or imaginary trading in my my mind back when I started. Then when finally I said, ah, okay, I'm ready. So I take out. Three thousand ringgit, ah, uh, three thousand sing dollar to start my first stock, you know, and then later on I go on. Today you have a marketplace. You have a lot of tools to set up. Um, um, they call it an imaginary watch list or portfolio that tracks your performance. You should do that. That is a good place to start. And if you do well, then you know that you potentially may be ready. But of course, nothing beats putting real money there, lah, and nothing beats losing money in the market, because Harris, if you lose money, you will realize. How small you are in this world. <laughs> yeah, the emotion you know? is really like. Yeah, yeah, it's real, right? It's just like it's just like for example, yeah, you just bought an ice cream, right? And then after that, you were about to eat the ice cream, right? Then the ice cream drops on the floor. Yeah, that is how it feels for me when I invest in the stock market. When I lose money, doesn't feel good, right? You know, yeah, that... so it teaches you to be what time, right? Next time, instead of holding your ice cream with one one hand, you know, I hold it with two hands, you know. So things like that in life, nothing beats having skin in the game, and nothing beats losing money. I think that's a very very real emotion. So that's a really good answer about the paper trading. <laughs> so, so moving on to the next question, who are some yeah. of your influence um to be in the world of investing that inspire you and you use as a guiding star when investing or running your asset management firm? Like right now on this generation, people always like watch like mm. Warren Buffett, Ray Dalio, mm. uh mm. Charlie Munger, or the mm. Citadel um CEO mm. days uh Ken Griffin. Uh, like yeah, I like a uh, Warren Buffett. Of course, when you say Warren Buffett, you cannot uh, look in isolation. He has Charlie Munger as well, right? Um, but the other guy I really like is Peter Lynch. So um, oh. Peter Lynch retired quite early. Um, and he's one of the few that retired at the top of his game. He called it a day, you know, when he was doing 20 over percent return per year. Um, so Peter Lynch is one of the investors that I really like. These are the, the one that um, the, the people know, uh, the famous one. But if you come back, if you ask me who is really my hero, right, when it comes to about investing, I think I have to say it's still my father because he grounds me with certain values. And these values is, is something that he always tell me, you know. And, and the best part, he don't tell me before. He always tell me when I lose money. You know? <laughs> so you already feel really bad, right, when you lose money, right? Then you yeah, come, yeah, see, yeah. I told you. You see, you don't <laughs> listen to me. <laughs> So then, then, then you get really upset. You know, why are you telling me this now? But then we think back, hey, it's, it's true. He did tell me that, you see. So if you're asking who is really my hero that makes me really guide me on the right path, I think it has to be my father, right? Because 
That's what our parents do right? when you're naughty, they spank you, right? Then when you grow older, they try to ground you. And, and it always makes me realize that no matter how much I climb in life, you know, my father will always be looking out for me in the best interest. And it always reminds me that when I look at him, a man who has led a very humble, a very decent and very honorable life, I feel that no matter how much money I make, I will always want to be like him. And that makes me go back. You know, it's very difficult to resist money, temptation, especially when you're so young, you know. And I've gotten quite popular over the past two years. But it is every time when I look at him, I'm re- reminded to be grounded, humble, and always do my best to give back to people who have helped me. And, and, and of course, students and the next generation youth. Yeah. Yeah, that's really thoughtful. So I think I will like study and think of my father always as always. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you should, Aris. You should. Yeah, yeah. I pass it back to Barry to finish up the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Thank every, you, Harris. Every time you guys mention my father, I just thinking of my father who's still badgering me. Like, uh, what's the money you borrowed? Like, uh, two years ago? Was it one year ago? Doing the after I may have blown up an account uh with warrants which I. Do not touch anymore. So that, if you're listening, uh, Sabala, uh, long time horizon, okay, uh, five years. Um, and also, I just wanted to say we did start a virtual portfolio that kind of lasted yeah. for three months because uh, it it wasn't doing so well. So we blew it up. So virtual portfolio yeah. is a legend. And then the last thing also just that was like PS fives may actually be a good investment because I managed to sell mine at a profit for six hundred after playing wow. it for like six months. So maybe get your hands on PS five. Not financial advice but just to kind of wrap it up i think uh it would be i think we should at least acknowledge the current climate that we are in and i think you've also mentioned that you may where most of your wealth is made is in bear markets in the podcast with the fi rl people and right now we are officially uh i don't know why i'm announcing it like some sort of what is it accomplishment we are now officially in a bear market with like uh 20 down from its peak so i'm just kind of curious do you uh, and it looks like it's probably going to be a uh, long we're in it for the long haul and then couple that with drying up liquidity because of uh, rising in- interest rates uh, geopolitical crisis in Europe do you have personally anything to say to uh, students who are kind of just thrown into this what will probably be a really painful period especially i think you've even mentioned that in 2008, it was extremely hard for the job market. Mm. And I guess you kind of weathered through that storm as people yeah. had like jobs taken away. So do you have any final pieces of advice as we youths head out into the world of uh, uncertain job opportunities and uh, rising inflation as well as the stock market as well? <laughs> I'll first touch about, Barry, I'll first touch about the bear market. I think you're right. And I it shows that you already really did your homework. Actually, my biggest amount of um, wealth or performance, my best performance is always doing a bad market. Honestly, that is without doubt. If you all look back at some of my writings, you look back at my book, you you all track how I progress. I never make much money during bull market. I make a lot of money when the market is bad. So when people are worried now, when people are very scared, people are panicking, this is the time that I will start to consider to look and take a larger position. Very simple. When people, people talk about companies, right? Good companies or bad companies, they all go through cycle up and down, up and down. Do you want to buy when the company is up or do you want to buy when the company is down? But you know it's still a good company. So an example would be when you go shopping, right? You want to go for a bargain 
You know, you want to go for bargain sale, right? You want to buy a value buy. Will you buy when they, they are selling so expensive at a premium or when you do you want to buy something when it's when no one wants it? But the intrinsic value remains the same. The company intrinsic value is the same. It's just that the share price is down. So this is what I'm trying to say. Bear market provides opportunities. And most of the people do not invest during bear markets. Most people invest during bull markets. You see? It's very simple. You can look at the data in Busan, Malaysia. The retail investors came in when the market is rallying. They didn't come in when the market was tanking. Okay, So I just share, since you had the opportunity to ask me, in fact, you're one of the first before even some of the media. You know, uh, In our capacity in, in, in Tradeview Capital, we have hours and hours of meeting internally with the team, with my fund managers, with all of them. We just sit there and we keep talking about the market. And we are very patient. We are very patient, we are very prudent, we are very careful because we manage our clients' money. At this point in time, I believe we are one of the very few fund management companies that is sitting close to 85% cash. I'm sitting on 85% cash. It means what? It means that I have a lot of money now to deploy in the market. Now, my question to you is, is it a good time to deploy now or three months ago? Definitely now, right? Now, your next question will be, is it better to deploy another three months later, right? We wouldn't know. The market may rebound. The market may fall further. So this is where other investment strategy comes in. For example, scaling entries, taking position, enabling at certain levels. You know, of course, when I say I take a position now, I can deploy. I don't deploy everything. You know, I'll take certain positions of companies which I'm very comfortable with the returns and the yields. Um, we can see they can still declare certain amount of dividends to come back. But at the same time, I won't deploy everything in case it drops further. Then when it comes to a point that I feel comfortable, I'll take even more position. So that is how I've always operated as a retail investor when I was before I had a fund management company. And today the philosophy is the same. But there is something that always helps me, right? The time, the time factor. So if I'm looking at a one-year, two-year time frame, I wouldn't know what happens. But if I'm looking at a five-year, ten-year, I roughly know what will happen. You know, I will know a certain company will be able to perform very well once the market starts to rebound. And that is where I make my most money. So in the near term, I may not make a lot of money, but in the long term, I'll do well. And my clients who come on board with my fund management company, they know my mindset already. They know how I think. So ultimately, this is how I approach a bear market. Now, another question that you were asking is, sorry, what was it again, Barry? More about yeah. like, as we're heading into a recession, yeah. and then you yeah. mentioned Jobs, how right? job, yeah, the job market right. dries up, essentially. For, for youth, Actually, I think um, the youth today are much more enterprising and creative than me. You know, they can make money off TikTok, they can make money off YouTube, they can make money off podcasts, they can do all kinds of ways. The youth today are extremely creative, extremely smart, and extremely filled with um, energy. And I think they should maintain and stick to it, whether the market is good, market or bad, just go towards it. For example, right, if you are... Um, economic finance student and you're starting to look for your first job and say because the job market is not doing well do you just stay at home and bum around you don't make sure you don't do that go out there and do something that you're good at you may be good at cooking for example you know you can start maybe a small business cooking and doing food catering or baking or whatever it may be you know and then with tiktok and, and all the social media you may be able to build a small business while you wait for your job so youth should do what youth do best be creative you know, find ways. I, I heard of this friend who actually 
dabbles in Pokemon card. You know, I used to laugh at him. How old are you? You're still Pokemon. You know, but he makes decent returns investing and selling Pokemon cards. You know, so that is the youth, the ability to adapt and be agile and do not lose that even as you come into a job market, good or bad times. This will add value towards building your character and building your personality. And when the market picks up, when the economy is starting to do well, it is people like you who not only acquired that skill or actually have realized experience running a small business that will do very well compared to people who just bum around, go and chill with their friends and just have all the fun in the world without actually working towards the goals in life. And that is my 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 sincere advice to young people today. Your greatest asset is your creativity and of course your your youth. I have the benefit of being um young in certain capacity. So I realized that when you're young, people will tend to give you certain more leeway to make mistakes. And that includes the current situation of university graduates who are coming out into the job market, whether in good times or bad times. You have the leeway to make mistakes. Make all the mistakes you want because once you make the mistakes, you learn and you grow. And these mistakes generally make you a better person, better employee, better potential business owner or entrepreneur. So like your organization today, right, Fly? So it's meaningful what you're doing. And I know that you're doing this not entirely because of money. A large part is also giving back to the community, giving back to the student organization. And that's why I feel so proud to be part of this and I'm honored to be invited even. Because it's meaningful. What you're doing changes people's lives. It's the same way when I write a book, someone reads it and they find useful. What we're having today is something that I feel that people will benefit. So these are the things that young people should work towards, especially um, in challenging times. So to sort of, as you know, it's really hard to feel dejected, you know, from basically systemic issues sometimes or yeah. just sometimes yeah. with the 24-hour news media cycle, social yeah. media algorithms, but hopefully with sort of boundless enthusiasm that will take you far and eventually everything should turn out all right, I guess. <laughs> or to borrow from one of my favorite quotes from Star Wars, it would be the greatest teacher failure is something I repeated to myself for like the past five years, I think, maybe too many times. But uh, anyway, with that, I'd like to give a huge thanks to uh, Han for coming on to our humble issue, uh, podcast on giving up your evening to spend time with us and share some of that uh, knowledge. And I'd also like to thank Daryl, Jiachi, Harris, and Calvin for coming up with such insightful questions and being game to uh, participate in this podcast so the only thing i have to say is tune into our website flymalaysia.org and read all our research publications our instagram page at fly youths and also if you haven't yet do pick up once once upon a time in bursa the money equation i highly recommend it if you want a sort of insightful contextualization in the malaysian stock market because there's really not much besides uh us broad-based stuff so this is uh, Muhammad Bahari signing off on behalf of the team. See you next month for our podcast edition. Goodbye. Just say bye if you want. <laughs> bye.